Today, I'd like to welcome Professor Emeritus Dimitrios Mikhailidis from the University of Cyprus. Dr. Mikhailidis has worn many different hats over the years, including as assistant director at the British School at Rome and as archaeological officer at the Cyprus Department of Antiquities and president of the International Committee for the Conservation of Mosaics. After 18 years of being president, I am now President Emeritus. Okay. And um, his research interests include Hellenistic and Roman mosaics, trade in the Greco-Roman world, in addition to the topography of Hellenistic and Roman Cyprus, to name but a few. Um, and today, however, we'll be discussing ancient medicine and medicinal practices in Cyprus. Dr. Mikhailidis, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. My first question, I suppose, is uh, discussing what we know about the typical Cypriot who lived, say, two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, what was life expectancy like for them at the time? And what were the typical ailments they would have um, been exposed to? Yeah, well, before trying to answer that, I yeah. should specify uh, to those listening that I am not a doctor. Yeah, I'm right. A <laughs> so uh, right. I, I look at things from a different uh, viewpoint than Absolutely. doctors do. Uh, but uh, certainly life expectancy was much, much shorter than what we have today. The, I mean, I'm only guessing now, but certainly a 50, 55-year-old person would be considered really old. Mm -hmm. uh, people matured faster and died faster than we do nowadays. And of course, uh, in antiquity, they had to deal with many uh, illnesses which are now easily treatable, but not so in antiquity. So a lot of people died of very simple things simply because they could not be treated. But all the same, uh, medicine was highly developed in antiquity. Uh, in late well, classical times, Hellenistic and Roman times, medicine really reached levels which were not surpassed till centuries late, later. But you remember, they did not have antibiotics. <laughs> they didn't know about microorganisms as mm -hmm. we know today. They had no microscopes. And uh, at least in most places, uh, vivisection or even dissection of humans was forbidden. Mm -hmm. So um, they had a lot of constraints. But I repeat, it is amazing what they could do. Yeah, and I think we're gonna we're gonna see that with where our discussion goes. Um, now, still talking about Cypriots. Uh, 2000 years ago and and if we think about cypriots today i know that we're we're prone to thalassemia uh, as as are many mediterranean peoples i vague and i understand you're not a a medical doctor but perhaps you can shed some light to, on this i vaguely recall that thalassemia is an evolutionary disease uh, sorry an ev evolutionary response that provides varying degrees of resistance to malaria now, is that something that the ancient Cypriots had to deal with? Yes. Uh, and uh, 
as you probably know, well, I'm sure you know, thalassemia is, uh, has been a very big problem in Cyprus mm -hmm. till modern times. It is now controlled. And for example, if a young couple wants to get married, uh, to get the marriage certificate, sorry, to get the marriage permit from the church, if they want to marry in church, they have to show that they have had, they have been tested for thalassemia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, even when the results show, might show that the possible offspring, the, sorry, the offspring might possibly be uh, having a bad case of thalassemia because there are, mm -hmm. of course, many degrees. Uh, the church cannot stop the couple from getting married. They will advise mm -hmm. them right. that it would be better not to have children. Uh, and, you know, most people have been very careful. So now thalassemia is controlled. But in the past, it was absolutely terrible. Uh, and my father, late father, who was a doctor, I mean, I, I remember from my childhood a lot, a lot of young children suffering from thalassemia that he was treating. Now, is this because um, um, malaria was a big problem in Cyprus since antiquity? I mean, I remember reading some primary sources from the British um, handover, or rather when the Ottoman Empire handed over uh, Cyprus to Great Britain, in the late 1800s, there was a lot of reports about marshes and mosquitoes and rampant malaria, something that you don't really think about. Uh, you know, I don't think about marshes when I think of Cyprus, but it was well documented then. And I suspect that was a problem going back to antiquity. Is that the case? Yes. Uh, the, when the British came to Cyprus in the late 19th century, the country was really infested with mosquitoes uh, and they had great uh, schemes for facing this problem uh, and solving it to a very large extent one of the things they did was to dry up the marshes mm -hmm. stagnant water and uh, they imported eucalyptus trees from australia which just drank up all the water Hmm. Uh, and dried up the marshes. That was one of several measures. But uh, malaria was still very much around till the interwar period in the 20th century. Of course, it isn't anymore. Right. In antiquity, uh, we assume, we, well, we know it was there. Uh, sorry, before going to antiquity, we have... Uh, um, travelers in the Renaissance in particular, and even later, which speak of the foul weather and imply that, you know, if you didn't get away very quickly, you would get ill. Mm -hmm. So uh, they, they were aware that something was going wrong. And in antiquity, one thing we can tell from the human remains is that uh, a lot of people suffered from some form of hemolytic anemia, uh, which is associated with thalassemia. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can tell this uh, from several 
telltale signs, especially on the skull. Uh, the sufferers from hemolytic anemias have what is called Cripra orbitalia, which is uh, which are a set of little holes in the orbit of the eye, or the eye socket on the skeleton, uh, which is created by these uh, anemias. And also the, the skull itself uh, has um, hyperostosis. It becomes thicker, especially at the top, uh, in an effort of the body to produce more red corpuscles. So these are things that you can see on the skeletons. Yeah, and I, I like that you brought that up because I think in, in one of your papers you mentioned that other common diseases that you can see from the skeletons was POTS disease, which is a, a disease I believe that affects the spine, ear infections. Well, now that technology has improved and I mean, we can we have access to DNA technologies in particular. Has that changed the way uh, archaeologists interact with finds, talking human remains? Do we do we know of any other ailments, or has uh, has that pretty much stayed the same with the finds that have been made in the past and the finds that are made in the present? No, it has changed a lot, and it's changing fast. Uh, and say some of my ex students have specialized in paleopathology. And they are working on skeletons that I excavated in Paphos, looking for things that I would never know you could find <laughs> from a skeleton. Uh, but they can tell a lot now about diet, uh, much more. I mean, that you could tell before, but now they can tell a lot more mm -hmm. about that uh, uh, nutrition in particular yes not diet nutrition but also other other um, factors that affected the spine the, the skeleton sorry <laughs> environmental factors that affected that well i mean but you you have been quite involved i know that in 1984 one of your first published papers um was on findings in a roman doctor's tomb in bafos just reading about that was incredible because you found a lot of his tools that were were buried with him, and some of these, you you wouldn't have imagined um, that they would be using. I'll give you an example. One of the items was a syringe, and I don't think of doctors two thousand years ago uh, using syringes. And obviously, the syringes are, are for a different purpose. But mm -hmm. again, like you said, very technologically advanced. So my question to you is, what was the typical toolkit that? doctors in um, in the Greco-Roman world, but more more focused on Cyprus, what sort of tools were, would they have been using? Well, the, the tomb you refer to in Paphos was a turning point in my research career. Uh, <laughs> you might be interested to know that I was brought up to be a doctor because my father is a doctor, yeah. my brother is a doctor, and so on. But I moved away from it yeah. <laughs> uh, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, but the first major discovery I made when I returned to work in Cyprus was the tomb you referred to. And uh, at the time, I didn't know much about 
ancient uh, surgical instruments. But when I showed the instruments to my father, he could tell me the use of each one of them, which shows you that very little has changed for the basic surgical instruments since antiquity. Of course, they, they did not have steel. Uh, they did have steel, sorry, but they didn't have uh, the means of making what people make today. And of course, they didn't have um, um, laser uh, to use for surgery and things. Uh, but all the instruments that were found in the tomb in Paphos are easily recognizable. Mm -hmm. The rarest is the one you mentioned, which is a syringe. It's a big syringe. Uh, it couldn't be used like we use a syringe today right. for injections. Yeah. It's yeah. thick. And the spout is thick. Uh, but it fits exactly the description of a pul course, which, mm -hmm. as the name implies, it's an instrument for, for removing pus mm -hmm. from uh, infected wounds and ears and things like that, uh, which is described in detail by Hero of Alexandria. And it is one of a, only a really handful of such instruments that are known to have survived from the ancient world. So that is a rare instrument. The others are, well, scalpels, of course, right. common. Uh, scalpels that have a sharp end and a blunt end. So uh, the sharp end, of course, is for cutting. Blunt, blunt end is for a multiple of uses, even lifting blood vessels during operations. And uh, well, the other common uh, uh, instrument is, uh, uh, is a set of bone levers of different mm. sizes. These are instruments uh, for lifting broken bones and pushing them or easing them back into position. And sorry, we have a yes. set of instruments of such bone levers because the size dependent dependent on the bone being treated. You use small levers for small bones, big levers for big ones. Now you mentioned actually you um, in your findings there were also a set or um, a number of cylindrical bronze tubes that presumably contained some ointments. There were, or if I remember right, there were six or seven tubular containers. Mm -hmm. One of them contained six delicate instruments, surgical instruments. Uh, they were kept in there for protection so that they wouldn't okay. break because yeah. they were delicate. But the others, two of them, when had not been perforated through corrosion, the others, uh, had holes on them and we lost their content. Mm -hmm. But those that still preserve their content had uh, one had powder, a red powder, and the other one had little pill like uh, pellets. Huh. Uh, they have been analyzed uh, and they are byproducts of copper in both cases. Uh, in the case of the pills, 
I am now, uh, this was done a long time ago, and we only looked for minerals at the time. Uh, for, in the, for the pills, uh, I'm now trying to have them analyzed again, but also looking for organic material, because I think they may have some plant extract with them. Now, these pills, uh, are we to assume that they would have been ingested, much like we would take prescription medicine today? I would think so, yes. Oh, wow, that, that's incredible. Pillful. I'm guessing, I'm guessing, but <laughs> yeah. that's what I think. Well, you know, it's, it's amazing because I believe Galen, the personal physician of Marcus Aurelius, visited Cyprus, as yeah. did uh, Dioscorides or Dioscorides, uh, chief physician to Nero. And, you know, it makes you wonder why, what would bring someone halfway across the Mediterranean to Cyprus? What, what did Cyprus have to offer? Why, why would ancient doctors make this type of trip to uh, this island in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean? Well, Cyprus uh, has been known since a remote antiquity for its copper. And by the time of Galen in the second, third century AD, the, um, the use of um, minerals coming from copper were very well known in the Roman world. And with that, Cyprus was associated. They knew that Cyprus had all these wonderful copper deposits and minerals that had been used for centuries for treating people. Uh, it was also known uh, that Cyprus has very rich vegetation you wouldn't think so if you came here in the summer when everything is dry, but uh, <laughs> after spring, you yeah. know, everything grows. Yeah. And uh, so the medicaments made from uh, the vegetation of Cyprus were also well known in antiquity. So Galen came, and he mentions this specifically in his writings, he came uh, on purpose to Cyprus to visit the mines and get substances that he knew the medicinal properties of, but also to experiment that with others that he didn't know. So it was, a, you know, a, it was a plant visit specifically mm -hmm. for the minerals of Cyprus. And we know that, uh, for example, he took. Uh, Misi with him, which is uh, one of these byproducts uh, of copper, which is uh, calcopyrite. I don't know if that, that's a correct pronunciation in English. Sulfite of copper and iron. Mm -hmm. And he tells us in his uh, writings that when leaving Cyprus, he took with him enough quantities of Misi to last him for 30 years of his practice in Rome. So that must have been an enormous quantity he took with him of just Missy. He took other substances right. too. Uh, my mom, um, I, was, I was talking to my mother about this uh, because you mentioned the rock rose. Uh, I think the scientific term would be labdomum, but my mom knows it as xistarka. Xistarka, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Now she wasn't. I mentioned it to her, but she wasn't familiar with its medicinal properties. She, she told me that uh, the goats, when they would graze, they would have this substance uh, stick to them. 
and I said, well, apparently the the Cypriots they used it for for medicinal reasons. Now, is that? And I, I'm always looking for continuities um, between the past and the present. Are there any continuities between what the ancient Cypriots did with medicine and uh, what we do, or what my mother's generation uh, would have done? There are continuities. Uh, we still use a lot of herbs uh, for mild treatments, not, not heavy <laughs> yeah. uh, ones, but we still use them a lot. Um, but uh, even the name Xistarka, which is the Cypriot dialect for the rock rose, yeah. uh, Xizo in Greek means to scrape. Mm -hmm. And the reason it got its name is because in antiquity, and this is described by several ancient authors, um, especially the Ascorides, they would let the goats graze uh, among these bushes and the oily substance from the leaves of the sister's plant would stick to their hair, to their fur and beard. Mm -hmm. And then they would be combed, scraped to remove this oily substance. And that was used for just about everything in medicine in antiquity. It was a panacea, mm -hmm. not only by itself, uh, but also mixed with other substances. And uh, it was at the same time, and perhaps even more so uh, in later times, used in perfumery. It is the basic ingredient that gives the amber scent to perfumes. And uh, in fact, there is a whole set of perfumes nowadays, because it's still being used for that today, uh, which include the name Chypre, uh, Cyprus in them, because Chypre is one of the eight main families of perfumes. Uh, you know, perfumes are divided into families. One of them right. is Chypre, yeah. and Chypre is associated with sisters, with Labdanum from Cyprus. Right. Unfortunately, we don't produce it anymore. Yeah. Uh, it comes mostly from the Arab world today. Mm -hmm. but, uh, it One of the other finds in the, uh, the doctor's tomb uh, was, I believe, a bleeding cup. Um, I, I know, obviously, ancient Greek medicine uh, relied on the balancing of the four humors, and one of them was blood. Presumably, this cup would have been used to um, take out blood in someone who was ill. Would they have used it for cupping as well? My mo my mother, who's uh, <laughs> one of my resources when I'm when I'm when I'm looking into continuity between the past and the present, she mentioned uh, as a child they would do gaja. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Yes, uh, is, is is that is that what they would have uh, done as well in antiquity? Yes, uh, they had dry cupping, mm -hmm. uh, and they had wet cupping. Uh, the dry one was kaja, like we do today, uh, or some people do today. It, uh, uh, I, my mother used to cup me. I don't know if that's the verb when yeah, I was yeah. young, and I always enjoyed it and i miss it very much yeah uh, looking at the web i realized that it is 
getting back into fashion and there are photographs of Jennifer Aniston on yeah. the, on the web with uh, marks from dry cupping or bronchial problems, the common cold, all these things. Uh, uh, the cupping is beneficial to these things and it really is, it helps a lot. But uh, wet cupping is different, of course, because yeah. you incise the skin before you apply the cup on it uh, to draw out blood. And that was to lower fever, uh, very much like uh, they used to use uh, leeches for mm -hmm. getting blood out of the body. And we know the instrument from Paphos was used for wet cupping because uh, it's not a uniform cup, let's say. It has a constriction. The, the circumference of the mouth is smaller uh, and the neck, the mouth and the neck are smaller than the body itself. And the reason is that uh, so that the blood would be trapped in the bigger body and not run out straight away. I don't know if I understood, uh, explained this properly. Think of a bottle, let's say, yeah. in a horizontal position. If you have some liquid in it, it will stay below the neck. So it wouldn't run out if you have the bottle in a horizontal position. So th this cup would function more or less in this way. Personally, I think um, one of the most intriguing finds that has come out of Cyprus, and I think they're, they're unique to Cyprus, is uh, the, the thermasmata, and, and I really want anyone listening to to Google these. Can you explain to the listeners what those were? A lot of what I'm going to say is guesswork, yeah. but uh, there is no other explanation for these strange, really strange yeah. uh, containers. Uh, they are unique, let's say, to Cyprus in the sense that uh, we have a lot of them here, and they are all concentrated in Paphos, not nowhere else in Cyprus so far. Outside Cyprus, there is one, one example in Rimini, in the house of the surgeon in Rimini, which must have come from the same workshop as the ones in Paphos. It's identical practically to them. There is another one from a shipwreck, uh, and anything else that resembles them uh, or might be used in the same way looks very different. So what we have in this Cypriot group uh, are vessels made of very, very, very thin uh, clay. I mean, very thin walls, clay vessels with very thin walls. They are made in two halves. Their lower half is molded on human parts of the body on a hand, ear, um, shoulders, elbows, the thorax, knees, every part of the body, even male genitalia, and that's the lower part. On this is attached the upper part, which is made to look like the part of the body is going to treat. So if you want to treat the hand, you don't need to look for the piece with the molded shape of the hand, but you look at the hand 
I mean, it looks exactly like a hand. So you take it and apply it directly onto the ailing part of the body. Sort of like um, a buyota. A buyota, a hot water bottle, yes. Right. I should say, I didn't say that between the lower and the upper part, of course, there is a gap and there is a hole to fill it with. And we assume that they use something warm, a warm liquid. Uh, oil retains its heat longer. So again, it's a, uh, it's a guess, but very likely they would use oil. But these uh, vessels are unknown in the ancient literature. Nobody mentions anything of the kind. Uh, we know of uh, thermasmata, as you mentioned, which are basically like plasters today, but they were not made of clay. They were made of cloth with medicaments inside them, very much like modern plasters. So this is a very uh, rare and so far characteristic of Paphos medical uh, vessel. A whole group of them was found in the 60s uh, in either a workshop where they were being made or more likely in a doctor's uh, uh, atelier, but no further excavation was done at the time. So we just have this cache of hot water bottles. Since then, uh, I have found quite a number in the excavations of the House of Orpheus. Uh, in Paphos again, uh, including several new types. So the, now we have one which is for a female breast that we didn't have before. So we can cover the whole body practically, the human body. That raises an interesting question. Uh, most of these finds, it appears, are coming out of Paphos, so if I recall, uh, Gideon, Larnaca. Uh, any particular reason why those two areas uh, are where the majority of the finds are? Well, Paphos is, uh, was the Hellenistic and Roman capital. So we, it is logical to assume that uh, medicine, the medical practice was developed in the capital. And uh, there has been another discovery in Paphos in the Agora excavations, which are being carried out by the a Polish excavation in Paphos they found more surgical instruments, not as many as in the tomb of the surgeon, but uh, it, just, it is just another indication that, you know, uh, medicine was a sophisticated uh, science in Paphos at that, in Roman times. Kition uh, is, I think, different. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that we have Gideon associated with medical practice is due to the uh, swampy nature of the area. Uh, now, of course, uh, in Gideon, which is modern Larnaca, uh, we associate it with the Salt Lake because uh, the coastline has changed. And what was an open harbor in antiquity, and then later a swamp uh, has now become a salt lake. So we, and salt of course is also uh, 
uh, an important substance used in medicine. So it's another reason. On one side, the unhealthy air of swamps and also the availability of salt, especially mm -hmm. later times. And if you've ever visited, and this is to, to the listeners here, if you've ever visited a museum that features Cypriot artifacts, you've probably noticed base ring wear vessels that were peculiarly shaped. And essentially those vessels are inverted poppy bulbs. And um, I encourage anyone listening to Google that just to get a sense of what I'm talking about. Now, uh, why was that a, a popular motif in Cyprus? It's a very controversial point. Uh, they do look very much like upside down poppy, the capsule of the yeah. poppy. And some of them are also painted with little lines or even are incised with little lines, which make them look even more like uh, a poppy head uh, being incised to extract uh, the latex from it. Mm -hmm. So the shape and the appearance, and also the fact that uh, this is a very common export of Bronze Age Cyprus in the Mediterranean, led originally Robert Merrilis, a colleague, uh, Australian colleague, to interpret them as containers of opium uh, for export. It, the, uh, his interpretation has been followed by many, has been disputed by others. Analysis have been carried out and traces of opium have been found in some of these vessels, but also in other vessels. But we must remember that uh, the latex uh, was used not in the way we use it today. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, abuse it today, rather. Yeah, right. Yeah, the <laughs> recreational use of opium as opposed yeah, to the medicinal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and also the the poppy itself was had a multiple of a multitude of uses, not just for medicinal pro, uh, problems. So uh, it is an open question, but it is so very likely that it was used for opium. Unfortunately, uh, there is no mention by any ancient author associating cyprus with opium production but you know which i not... find really surprising because given its ubiquitousness across the island and you know the poppies and their derivative opium that it wasn't something that was mentioned in the hellenistic age you would assume that they would have been quite familiar with it and presumably would have administered it in surgical operations um, but that wasn't the case if i'm to understand correctly well, we don't know because nobody mentions them. Uh, we, there is one reference uh, by a Cypriot doctor. This is Diagoras, the Cypriot, who lived in the third, second century before Christ, who was famous for a collyrion, for an eye uh, preparation, which is made from all sorts of exotic things, including opium. So, and this is a Cypriot doctor, so we can associate it with 
opium mm -hmm. and Cyprus. But of course, uh, going to uh, answering what you said, what in Cypriot dialect we call haskashi, which is a very um, a variety of the papaver soniferum or the another type we have in Cyprus. The haskasha in Cypriot to say somebody's haskasmenos, it means mm -hmm. somebody's a bit uh, gaga, has lost it. Yeah. And this is, of course, associated with, it derives from Haskashi, and Haskashi, as I said, is the opium poppy. When I was working in Paphos with some very old ladies, uh, work, uh, work ladies, not workmen, mm -hmm. <laughs> workwomen, and they were sort of reminiscing of their younger days and the tough life they had, harvesting in the high heat of summer, in Cyprus or olive picking, etc. And I said to them, what did you do with your children when you are so busy working from sunrise to sunset? And they said, oh, we just gave them haskashi, tea. They made tea <laughs> with the seeds of this and gave them to the children, which slept under the olive tree. Wow. The mothers were free to look after them again. So it was used until fairly recently, <laughs> in memory. I think you I have to ask my mother about that. <laughs> in a very different way, yeah. can go from what it is used yeah, today, absolutely. in some, in some areas anyway. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that um, Cypriot doctor, um, because I don't want uh, listeners to, uh, to think that Cyprus was only exploited for its resources. It actually produced its own doctors. And amazingly, we have in the literary record at least 19 who either were Cypriot or at the very least practiced in Cyprus, including the Cypriots Apollonion, Abkition, and Zenon uh, the Cypriot. In fact, I think Zenon the Cypriot was famous for founding a school of medicine in Alexandria. So what other things were these Cypriot doctors uh, known for? I think one of them may have even produced a treatise that is still around. Well, Zenon that you mentioned uh, was very famous. Uh, we don't have very much information on him, but uh, he was famous. He had this um, school in Alexandria, which uh, some of his graduates uh, included uh, some of the most famous doctors in antiquity. So it was a very important school of medicine. But uh, the other important thing in relation to Zenon is that uh, he quarreled or, well, he had disagreements with the Bishop of Alexandria and he was exiled, but then he was later reinstated and uh, the letters written to him after his return to Alexandria survive, or some of the letters survive, and they include letters from um, Julian, the emperor Julian, the apostate, and uh, the famous orator, sophist, Libanius, which extol his medical uh, knowledge, uh, calling him the doctor of the doctors. So it shows you how important he was to receive letters from uh, Libanius and the Emperor Julian. But for 
Apollonius of Gideon, we know a lot more because one of his treatises, as you mentioned, survives. We know that he wrote, he was the author of many books and one on epilepsy. Uh, they don't survive. The one that does survive is the one on joints, which is an early commentary on uh, Hippocrates. And we know from the, his own introduction to the book that the writing of it was commissioned by Ptolemy, king of Cyprus. This, we are talking about the first century BC, and the book is dedicated to the king himself. And it includes 30 Hippocratic methods of uh, dealing with fractures, bone fractures, and, you know, dislocations and how to treat them. And uh, what is very important in relation to this is that he tells us in the introduction of the book that in order to avoid the uh, inexperienced doctors or doctors that are too tired uh, make a mistake during treatment, he illustrates the book with the methods. So this is one of the earliest recorded books, uh, medical books with illustrations. Of course, the original manuscript of uh, Apollonius does not survive, but we have a complete copy of it, which was preserved in the library of a Byzantine doctor, Nikitas, uh, of the 8th century, which shows you that till the 8th century, this was still a very important book. And also, even much later, during the Renaissance, in the early 15th century, when Ennio Silvio Piccolomini, the future Pope Pius II, talks about Gideon, he says, Gideon, blah, 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 blah. The city of Zenon, the founder of Stoic philosophy, and of Apollonius, the doctor. So until then, he was very well known. You mentioned that, of course, there were limits to medicine. And when medicine couldn't correct the, the ailment, so to speak, gods were supp supplicated. Um, and we, we have evidence of this a lot in what are called ex votos, I believe. Uh, can you explain what those were and what were the common types that were found in temples uh, around Cyprus? Yes, these are ex votos. Uh, in the Hellenistic period, uh, or, or sorry, in the archaic period, we have ex votos made of clay. They are small terracotta figurines which represent parturition, uh, preparation for it, the actual birth, the moment of birth. And this, we assume, acted as sort of a way of protecting the woman. Uh, because, you know, in antiquity and later, women very often died during parturition. 
this is one group. In uh, a bit later, in Hellenistic times and Roman times, the exodus changed completely. And what we have are small representations of the ailing part of the body, an eye, an ear, a breast, uh, a phallus, any part of the body that was suffering, they would have it made in stone or in clay and put it up in a sanctuary, uh, praying for its cure. Sometimes we assume that such exvotos were also put after the cure in order to thank the god for helping in the cure. After a prayer, you get cured, so you put uh, an image of the part of your body that was cured into the into the temple to thank the god. And we know this from the continuation of this habit, of this uh, tradition, to this day, because we have ex votos not made of stone or clay but made of beeswax uh, used in exactly the same way today mm -hmm. people hung them around an icon either in prayer for the cure of that part of the body of their own their own body or the body of a friend or family member or they are put after the cure and we know this uh, after the cure uh, because there is a sort of um, a well-known prayer let's say uh, a parent is is praying for the cure of a family member and uh, he says to the saint if you cure him, I give you a candle, the weight of his body or her body. Mm -hmm. And we have gigantic uh, candles in churches, really unusable uh, yeah. as a candle, which are obviously the equivalent of the cured person's body weight. Mm -hmm. So this is a tradition that really goes on since antiquity. Yeah, which I find amazing. I, I, anytime I, I can pick up on continuities between the past and the present, I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm I'm really taken aback. And you know, much like today, you mentioned um, you mentioned church practices, um, although not condoned by the church. Uh, evil eye amulets are something that are that are quite popular around uh, the the Levant. You know, not just Cyprus, but you can find them in in Lebanon. You can find them in in Turkey. Um, but the ancient, and, and that of course is to ward off the evil eye. But the the ancient Cypriots they had other, um, for lack of a better word, amulets, uh, such as. Well, I mean, maybe you can talk to us about that. What were those, and how were they? Um, apo, I think you call it apotropaic, uh, which is really I love that yes. word. <laughs> how did they? How did those work, and what did they use to represent or to ward off evil? 
Yeah, they, well, of course, the protagonist in all this is the evil eye, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, the Vascanos of Thalmos, uh, which is very much alive today. People mm -hmm. are scared of the evil eye, not only Cyprus, um, but... Uh, My wife is Italian, so I know about the Malocchio. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly yeah, the same thing. And of course, in the Arab world, it's there also. So it's not a, a, a sort of Western uh, tradition. It, it's all the Mediterranean that has yeah. this malocchio. Um, but uh, there were uh, um, amulets of general apotropaic nature the representation of monsters uh, on a piece of jewelry would avert evil. Uh, the representation of uh, male genital genitalia, we'd find this very strange today that somebody right. would have a, a chain with a male genitalia hand. <laughs> <Right. on. laughs> but uh, it was an apotropaic uh amulet to avert the evil uh, evil spirits or i uh, another thing was a clenched fist which again was used as an amulet in glass or other substances again hanging on a chain uh and you know the clenched uh, fist is an indication of strength so that would make the owner strong the wearer strong to avert whatever evil was coming his okay. or her way. And of course, you have other more specific amulets, which are sort of medicinal, perhaps one can call them. Uh, we have one amulet which has a, a magic uh, formula written on it, uh, which includes the word pepte which is from pepsis, which means digestion. So it's an amulet, amulet for helping the wearer digest in right. case of indigestion. Which for our listeners is where the uh, the company Pepsi got their name for their, <laughs> for their cola. <laughs> Pepsi, yes. <laughs> so, and um, you explained the clenched fist. That makes sense, you know, strength. Um, is there any guess as to why the phallus was so was so? Is that the same? Is that the same explanation? Strength, uh, virility, I and mean, what what other explanations can we have for that? Uh, it's uh, yes. I think the answer to is yes to what you said, and we don't only have it in amulets. Uh, the the phallus is used for many other things. Uh, the representation of the phallus is used for many other things, and it's always a sort of magic, is sometimes represented together with weird animals, mm -hmm. uh, again, to avert uh, the evil spirits. Well, this has been really incredible talk, um, and it was a pleasure to have you here, um, and thank you so much, because this really does provide a lot more insight the history of Cyprus and I just wanted to thank you for for joining us. Uh, thank you. Right. Thank you.